This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to everyone's favorite fintech investing podcast, because it's not fintech investment advice. My name is Alex Johnson, and I am joined, as always, by the brilliant and wise and powerful author of the Fintech Brain Food newsletter, Simon Taylor. Simon, what's up, buddy? You know, I am excited to be back with the one and only Alex Johnson, author of the Fintech Takes newsletter, and possibly... The, you know, like on the two-by-two two matrix of nice and competent, you're one of those unicorns that's in the top right quadrant, my friend. You've, you've, you've <laughs> kind of got that thing nailed. What a lovely compliment, Simon. I really appreciate that. You, you speak right to my heart as someone who's looked at a million of those four-by-four four grids. Um, just as an exercise, I think what we should do this weekend is make a four-by-four four grid for like awesome human beings and then just like find a way to put yourself in the top right quadrant because that's what everyone who like builds one of those things is like regardless of like what the parameters are you build design it in a way where you're in the top right that's the trick did you ever play the game top trumps it's like the card game where you've kind of got like i don't know it might be sports teams or it might be sports stars and they've all got statistics they might have like four or five statistics and the idea of the game is both parties draw a card at the same time and you will have potentially with most cards one statistic that beats the other guy and uh-huh. so the trick of the game is to pick that one statistic where you win which is kind of how most financial services companies report their annual results so you know it's, <laughs> <laughs> that is 100% true right like i as you were talking about that i was like sofi you're talking about sofi right so like that's pretty much what we're doing and and actually speaking of that for those who maybe listening and didn't see this Simon and I and our friend Julie Verhaj Greenberg published a special edition, I guess, of the Simon's newsletter. It's in FinTech Brain Food, and it's on FinTech earnings season. So we went back for the earnings that were just reported, I guess, for Q4 of 2023 and uh, did a little analysis. I did Lending Club, Julie talked about PayPal, and Simon, which uh, small companies did you talk about? I can't remember. I, I don't know if you've heard of the one, I think City Bank and JP Morgan. Oh, with an I. Right. Okay, yeah, so yeah, City yeah, yeah. with an I. Yeah, yeah. And then J, is it JPMC? Is that the acronym they go by? That's what the kids call it. Yeah. That's, a- <laughs> <laughs> That's what the kids call it. Uh, okay. Well, for those listening, you just learned some new like slang that the, the teenagers are using, JPMC. And actually, Simon, not to, you know, totally just have a brilliant segue, but what the kids are talking about and what the kids are focused on is actually a really good lead-in to a couple of the companies that I wanted to talk about. I, I hate to like grab the steering wheel, but can I go first for our first company today? I'm British. I'm pathologically polite. Please be my guest. <laughs> okay. Well, so my uh, this is a bit of a theme that I'll be building on, but the first one I want to talk about is a company called TipTop, which right off the bat, great name, alliteration. I'm thinking about TopCat immediately. So he is the most TipTop. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. So great, great name. And what TipTop does is they essentially describe themselves as the instant cash trade-in app. And so the basic idea is you download this app and it will scan your receipts, your recent receipts. Maybe it connects to your email account. I'm not exactly sure. 
and it will offer in real time prices for some of the things that you've purchased. So for example, if you bought an Oculus headset, they would scan that receipt, they would look at the details, and they would essentially offer you a real-time price for what they'd be willing to pay you for. And so at any time in this app, you can essentially liquidate any of your purchases. And the premise here, it's mostly focused around consumer electronic goods. So smartphones, VR headsets, gaming systems, that kind of stuff. And the basic premise is that sort of in the modern age of personal electronics, because everything is solid state, and there's not like a lot of moving parts anymore, these devices tend to hold up pretty well and to hold their value reasonably well. And that consumers, particularly young consumers, Gen Zers, might benefit from having sort of a liquid market at their fingertips where they could essentially trade in these electronics if they desire to. And so with the push of a button, you can essentially cash out any of these qualified electronics that they've given you prices on. And when you do that, you can schedule it for a courier to come pick up your device or you can mail it in and you know immediately you've cashed out that purchase. This is something that I've actually seen quite a few folks kind of tangentially in the fintech space looking at. Sometimes it's referred to as the circular economy or upcycling, but it's this idea that even like physical possessions should really be thought more of as sort of temporarily rented assets than like things that you're going to own forever and that will eventually end up in your closet. And part of the appeal, I think, of that to a Gen Z consumer in particular is you know, let's throw less stuff in the landfill. But it also, I think, kind of taps into this like evolving idea of ownership. And, you know, thinking about everything you own, not just as something that provides utility in your life, but something that has a sort of ongoing monetary value that you should consider something akin to your bank account, or maybe a better analogy would be, you know, gift cards that are in a drawer somewhere like there's a balance in your life associated with some of these different assets that you should be able to be aware of and tap into. The other thing that's interesting about these guys, and then Simon, I want to get your quick take on this because I know you're down with Gen Z, is I they apparently also are working on kind of a B2B angle to this, which is having an e-commerce integration, which would allow for merchants that are selling some of these items to basically have kind of a guaranteed buyback sort of option built into the checkout. And so when you're helping a consumer shop for your product, you can essentially show them, hey, after a certain amount of time, we can provide a guaranteed buyback on this option. So it lowers functionally your total cost of ownership for this device. And the argument, and I I don't know if they've gotten enough traction here to be able to demonstrate this with numbers, but the argument is that that will improve your odds of being able to make that sale, much in the same way that you know, buy now, pay later financing does at the point of sale. Yeah, removing the friction from uh, a sale increases the conversion. If you have yep. more conversion, you have more sales, which means you get more revenue. Why wouldn't you want that? And you're immediately putting this potentially reasonably high valued item into a no regrets category, or at least in people's yes. minds, because like returns are a pain in the backside and you gotta, you've got to initiate the process. Whereas what I think is insightful about this company is triggering the potential to return the product. Now, the flip side of that is for most merchants, returns are going through the roof anyway. 
They're very expensive. There's an awful lot of returns fraud. Do I want to increase my returns right now? Now, that's that's a whole thing that they could be worried about. But I guess what you're saying is, no, we will resell it on a secondary market. So merchant, you don't have to even worry about the return. This person's going to get made whole reselling the thing. I would be weary about that for marketplaces with counterfeit goods. Yep. Because now I've got a way to list a counterfeit good, get somebody to buy it who will then potentially resell it. And this counterfeit good just goes and goes and goes. But, you know, consider the day job I have. I have a little bias. But the, the kind of that trigger, I wonder if they could have called it like smart receipts, you know, like yeah. that, that might. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what mm-hmm. PayPal called it. And um, that's right. Yeah. And, it, and it broke the world. Everyone was shocked. It broke the internet with how shocked everybody was. But (laughs) fundamentally, this is a good feature, right? This is a great idea. The second order of friction, though, is we always knew how to eBay things. Like, selling your secondhand stuff was never an issue. It's nice to have this, like, little, oh, you could get some money trigger. Like, this is the real money you could get right now. That's nice. But without the, like, okay, who's going to manage the schlep? Who's going to package this thing? Who's going to come pick it up? I spent... I don't know about you, but I spent half of my life returning stuff we got from Amazon or that doesn't fit the kids anymore. And, you know, oh, secondary stuff. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. We we do a lot of sales of uh, baby equipment that we no longer need, particularly now that we're done having babies. So, like, as the youngest one grows out of stuff, we're like, okay, so who out there on the internet needs this thing? And I, you're giving me a great flashback to recent experiences my wife has had where she's getting emails from people at 10 at night going, hey, you know, can we stop by and grab this? And she's like, okay, sure. And she puts it out on the porch and then no one comes by to grab it. So there is a lot of friction associated with essentially getting rid of stuff that you don't want. And I mean, I'm kind of a collector of old electronics, but you know, I would have to say that for me, my wife is also putting a lot of pressure on me to be like, hey, do we really need this, you know, iPhone? You're, you already have like your first iPhone that we're saving for posterity, but like, do we need the subsequent six other iPhones that you have? Probably not, right? Probably not. No, 100%. And it's the admin that's the problem here. I'm almost thinking about like, how do you make this so frictionless? The early days of Netflix, like the really early days of Netflix, you get the DVD and you had the envelope to immediately send it back. So yes, I don't know from your description, I'd need to look at them. But wouldn't it be cool if the package you got also came with a reselling package? Yeah, no, that's a great idea, right? I mean, I think that directionally is where they want to go, it seems, with the B2B angle and being integrated at the point of sale. But you make a really good point, right? If you're going to solve this problem, you have to solve 100% of it as much as you can. And so like having a tip-top branded package that's inside the package when they send you this new device that you just bought so that at any time you know you can send it back makes a lot of sense. The other thing I was wondering about, Simon, is is there some way to then sort of channel a little bit of that resale back into some type of incentive for the original merchant. So I'm getting rid of this thing because I want to upgrade to the new thing. And so this is going to help me sell or get rid of or cash out of my other thing. And then like maybe it's something where instead of the cash out going directly to your bank account, they build in an option for, hey, cash this out or put this cash towards the purchase of a replacement or an upgrade of this product and we'll give you a special like discount and sort of magnify the amount of uh, value that you're getting out of that. It's next-gen store credit, right? You could have $200 of store credit or a resale value of 175 
and exactly that's bringing more sales back but only if you resell it like if you you're still gonna have to post this thing and resell it but you're getting cash back which you know it kind of happens with mobile phones like there's a whole bunch of like trade-ins but this is making the trade-in work for any merchant and it's dealing with a lot of the delivery risk and distribution risk. Yes. Imagine this in something like a shop pay or an Apple pay as well, because looking at the PayPal analysis that came out, like the branded checkout button is PayPal is dying, but oh my God, shop pay and Apple pay are doing really well. And part of it is they've just gone so deep on the experience. Like shop pay is aggressively frictionless. It's, it's uncanny. It's amazing. It's uncanny. I just click this one button. I'm going to get through 3D Secure because they've done the homework. Like, I'm not even totally. going to get that pop-up. They've got my address. They've got the card. It just goes all the way through and then risk managing it. Oh, and by the way, I get delivery updates. Oh, by the way, if I need to reshare. Wow. That it's amazing. Is... And they, they've thought through every part of it, right? So kind of to your point, I think this is a really good example of something that's a great feature, as you said before, right? And it kind of does, I guess that brings up a question we ask a lot, which is, company or feature, company or product. And I could absolutely see this type of thing sitting within a Shopify type experience. I could absolutely see this type of thing sitting within a Klarna type bundle of offerings. And so I will be very curious on that front. And as you said, like the hard part here, the reason not everyone wants to do this is managing the risk associated with fraud, counterfeiting, you know, giving someone the ability to instantly cash themselves out while you take the risk of being able to resell it on the market. Like all of those things are the stuff that they don't really talk about in the press release, but that's like what a lot of this hinges on them doing very well. Put it this way. If I ran a fraud ring for counterfeit goods, I'd be all over this. This is the next victim, fresh meat. So, you know, like the, that uh, sadly is the nature of fintech. Every new company goes through a rite of passage where they realize, oh, the fraudsters target the little guy because they realize they're the weak link in the system. So there's a, there's, right. there's, there's that going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, thank you for depressing us, Simon uh, of Sardine Land. On that note, why don't you take us into your next company? Your first okay. company. Okay, this one broke Twitter yesterday. So this Ooh. company is called Lucite. L-U-C-I-T-E-A-I. And I think of this as like Steve McLaughlin as a service. FT Partners as a service. (laughs) You know what I mean? Immediately. You know those slides that you see, those investment banking analyst slides? Oh, yeah. Well, they're actually pretty hard to put together. You need to pull together a business overview. You need to pull in public data. You want to do a competitive analysis. You want to look at the metrics recent M&A from their category. Like there's a lot to pull into an FT Partners Monthly. Now you can do it with like three clicks. So Lucite is free. You go to their website and you type in a company that you want to have a financial overview or a competitor analysis or something like that. And then you put in their stock ticker if they have one, and then you put in their website. You click a button, you wait a couple of minutes, and you get PowerPoint slides that look uncannily like investment banking analyst slides. <laughs> wow. What are UPenn interns going to do now? Like, it's, it's just a... It's <laughs> <laughs> Back well, to making I mean, coffee, guys. That's the question, right? I mean, it's um, that's a really interesting example. And I saw you, I think you tweeted about it recently, and I was um, adding it to my list of cool things Simon has discovered that I'm going to go play with now over the weekend. But it is a really interesting example of, and we've talked a lot about like generative AI on the podcast broadly, but 
it's funny, you know, whenever you talk about generative AI, we talk about sort of, I I call it over-eager intern as a service, right? Like, you know, really enthusiastic, energetic intern doesn't necessarily get everything exactly right, but as a service never gets tired. You can call it a million times and it'll just go do it. And it's just thrilled to help you. Which is kind of all interns. It is. It is absolutely all interns, right? I mean, like when I, I, my first job in fintech, I was an intern and I swear I was like, a labradoodle, just like sprinting through the hallways, ramming into stuff, knocking stuff over, making huge messes that other people had to clean up. Like I wasn't like the glorious paragon of efficiency that I am today, Simon, but I was eager and I I like to think on balance, I was helpful. And I guess the thing I'm really curious about here is we keep conceiving of what generative AI can do as removing the sort of the lowest rung of kind of low value human work, where there's that level of judgment and sort of discernment, but it's not something that you're ever going to pay, you know, $1,000 an hour for. But I do think there is this bias to assuming that when we say that, oh, yeah, but that's like someone else's low value work. That's not my low value work. My low value work is actually high value work, right? And so you think about it in the context of, someone doing like data entry at a community bank or something, right? And it's like, okay, like maybe that person isn't going to work anymore. I don't think that undergraduates of prestigious universities are necessarily thinking that this was going to replace them, but there was no real reason to assume that like generative AI doesn't care, right? Like data entry for a community bank compiling information for a board meeting and you know, compiling information for investment slides that are going to go to, you know, senior partners and investment bankers, you know, generative AI doesn't really make that distinction. So even though in society, we might draw distinctions between those two and how much we pay people to do those work, we don't really draw that same distinction when it comes to the technology. So this is kind of breaking my brain a little bit. Right, a little bit. Now, standard disclaimers apply for anything AI related, which is yeah. number one, this is done with publicly available APIs on GPT-4, yes. right? So why couldn't ever anybody just go build this? In fact, they already are. Somebody reached out to me to say that Microsoft is working with the London Stock Exchange Group to make this a default option for investment banks as part of PowerPoint with Microsoft Copilot. Makes They're going to be fine. Somebody else reached out to me, um, Aman, who runs, I forget the name of his M&A company, I think it's Parkhurst. They have Capital IQ, which is a whole other platform, and you can just build a dashboard pretty quickly that produces a lot of this sort of stuff. But that's not free, and it's not publicly available, and it doesn't just need an email address to get it done. There's a democratization element that's going on that, that's kind of powerful. So there's all of the AI disclaimers, but I, I think the most important thing about this is like the cost and energy involved of producing it with three clicks was still pretty great. The fact is, anybody anywhere around the world can now do this almost instantly, and that's pretty cool. The second point, though, is if you actually go look at these slides, they're very generic, and it's okay, but the real value Steve FT Partners adds is his industry experience, his knowledge, his understanding of the transactions that are not public domain, therefore the market pricing, his ability to arbitrage that, his ability to broker. Really, this is making the first job of his marketing slightly more efficient. It's not necessarily making everything else right and accurate and and kind of there. But you think about that culture of um, getting your investment analyst job. Yeah. The 
you go go you go work for a Blackstone, you go work for a Morgan Stanley. Like your first year, your first three years, they work the analysts. It's a hundred hour weeks. It's it's all of that. It's almost like a rite of passage. How many analysts will pay for something like this on the side to look good in front of bosses? Like the <laughs> the quiet AI use is absolutely a thing, especially for low hanging fruit, and it is a skill issue. But I just wonder, I just wonder where all of this leads to. So they might not be this company. It might appear somewhere else, but what I love is a tangible example that you can get your head around. I did this with on buy now, pay later provider Affirm. Yeah. I stuck those up on social and everyone's like, whoa. And I was even blown away by how quick it was. And the fact that I might actually use this to just pull together the basic data that I need because it's kind of nice. Yeah. Rather than using something like a data wrapper where I'd have way more control, but I need to select the data set and I need to... Anything that reduces the friction tends to get used more because humans are lazy and stupid, and I'm definitely both of those things. No, no. Um, you are brilliant and hardworking, but speaking for the lazy, stupid population, I totally agree. And I think that the challenge, as you articulated, right, is a lot of the value is like, as you said, data, right? Like Steve knows things that other people don't know and it's not public and it's not on the internet. And so, and you apply that broadly to things like AI and it's like, what private proprietary data set that you, do you have that no one else has? And then what can AI do on top of that data set? And I think that that's a really, really good observation. The other thing though that you touched on that I am kind of curious about is I do wonder how the form evolves a bit, right? Because like investment slides for like an investment bank, like those, I, we've all seen those a million times. There's a very standard format. You called the ones outputted by this tool kind of simple and generic. But honestly, most of the slides that get produced by those, you know, associates at those investment banks, they're very generic and sort of simple as well. I wonder though, like, could we change the form factor? Like if you're a retail investor, like if you're someone who uses Robinhood, I wonder if you could, you know, tweak the approach so that the output doesn't look like investment bank slides, because I don't think that's what most retail traders look at or think about. But the ability to basically type in a company, private or public, and have it aggregate and give some type of output that's useful. I could see that kind of to your point about democratization, having a much broader appeal than just making investment bank associates lives a little bit easier. So there is sort of a broader question about how this sort of easy summarization changes like investing generally. Simon, can I give you my second company? Please do. Okay. So mine is keeping with the theme of Gen Z. This is a company called Rove, and it is being described by the company as the first travel card for Gen Z. So it is a credit card, and the way they describe it is they are redefining the credit card industry with a no annual fee travel card which utilizes a cash flow algorithm for underwriting and is the first ever integrated travel portal for points travel, which allows for the average spender, not a super high spender, but the average spender to effortlessly earn a free trip every year. So if you go to their website, the sort of central premise is basically travel for free by using this card. It offers 2x points on all purchases, 3x on travel, and 4x for a month for every referral that you make. And again, this is a sort of travel-based rewards card for Gen Z that doesn't have an annual fee. So Simon, the reason I wanted to talk about this one is that on the surface, 
I don't totally get it. And the reason I say that is the couple things. One, a lot of the things they describe as being like firsts or being unique don't seem particularly like firsts or unique things to me. Like uh, <laughs> an integrated travel portal for points travel. Like, I mean, American Express is actually a travel agency, like a licensed travel agent. They've been doing that forever. Lots of other large issuers have very sort of tightly integrated travel booking experiences. And even from like a unit economics perspective, and again, early stage company, still a lot to be figured out, but being able to offer average spenders rewards that will allow them to travel for free with no annual fee, like there's a reason that even like low grade travel oriented rewards credit cards have, you know, a $95 annual fee. And if you want one that gives you like the premium experience, you're going to be more in the like four to $500 a year annual fee. And so I, I don't quite understand that. But the reason I wanted to ask you about this one, Simon, is you wrote a piece recently in your newsletter talking about the next great B2C financial services companies and what that would look like. And you made a really good observation in that piece that I, I, I don't know, I guess I'd never really thought about it. But the thing you pointed out was there is an element of building companies for new generations and the just sort of like brand equity associated with this is an American Express. This is a new thing for you. And I'm really curious to get your take on sort of from that nuanced perspective, what is the opportunity to build a travel card for Gen Z or, you know, name whatever other kind of established consumer product category and financial services you want to. Like when we talk about building something for a new generation, is it as easy as claiming that you're doing everything first and sort of having the right aesthetic? Like what goes into kind of nailing that? Because this company sort of prompted those questions for me. Great question. Now, I've been trying to diagnose that for a while, but I think some of it is just great company building. Like you get an early adopter community who are just passionately believe in your product and they become your first best customer and you nail that persona and that becomes your wedge and your flywheel out into other segments and, and you follow the generation. People have been saying for a while consumer fintech is dead, and, and I don't think that's true. I think consumer tech moves in generations. I think all tech moves in generations. Like every 10 to 15 years, you get a, just another generation of companies. Why? Because technology moves on and buyers change and what people want change and the market changes and politics change. Like the world is not static. The human species is not static. You need to build new things with the new tools and so on. So Absolutely, I buy the need for a new generation. As you double click on this, though, there's no USP obvious to me. There's no USP obvious to Alex from looking at it. The economics are questionable, but I'm not the target audience. Does that really resonate on a college campus somewhere? Why does it? Does the aesthetic really resonate? Consider that Gen Z is massively into, well, not massively into, but really showing a preference compared to the Gen Y and even Gen X for physical things, for vinyl. They're the biggest buyers of vinyl out of any generation, including boomers. They're meeting more in libraries statistically than the previous two generations did. Like, this is reversing some trends in a world where everything is now instant on for a generation of people that have been more bombarded by having mobile phones than just about anybody. Gen A might even go beyond that for anything. So, you know, Gen Z, 96 through to, I think, 2010, is it, as an average age? Like, 
you've grown up with mobile phones for the most part. Like uh, certainly into your teenagers, mobile phones were a thing. You have been bombarded by these dopamine hits. You want physical experiences and travel is a great way to do that. And not all travel is created equal. There are bits of travel to the beach. There are bits of travel that are to do with groups. So if you reframe travel from this like premium, high-end, Amex, you know, Hilton Honors, like Marriott reward points type of like you're going to some resort, you're flying around everywhere to actually, no, this is like a bunch of us going away for a spring break or something. Maybe, you know, you could see how like there is lower cost travel that you can maybe make the unit economics work from. I can see how there's a broader macro trend towards like doing this stuff. But I don't know. What do you think the wedge would be? What do you think would make this stick? I think that you're right generally in the sense that there is an advantage to being able to speak to a, a group of consumers that you just sort of intuitively understand better than other providers in the market. And so to your point about sort of generational turnover in consumer tech and consumer products, I think that's a big part of it. And, you know, I mean, you and I are not Gen Zers. We're too old and broken down to even pretend to be in that generation now. But so it's a little hard for us to like kind of judge the aesthetic, I think. And that that's the thing that's really hard. I mean, even even if I was like investing in the company, I would be like, can I get like someone who sort of is more the target market to evaluate this? Because I don't, I wouldn't trust myself to know what's going to sort of stick with that particular target market. I think the thing that I would worry about or kind of question is which areas within financial services are most ripe for a generationally different product that doesn't necessarily have a massive moat around it from a business model perspective. And that's the thing I, I struggle with with credit cards, right? Is that credit cards are a great business, but it really is ultra competitive. I've sort of described it in the past as being a knife fight in a prison yard every day, right? I mean, like the the ones who are in this space, the JPMCs that the, the kids are all talking about and American Express and Capital One uh, City, like they are like, knifing each other in the prison yard every day to grab just a small segment of customers or to move a little bit of spend over from one to the other. I mean, it's, it is intensely competitive. And the unit economics are great, but they only kind of make sense at scale. And so it's really hard to get to that point. They only make sense at scale and their sweet spot customer that they talk about skews older and higher earning. Yes. And every... So you almost have this like moving sliding scale of how old the institution is and how old their customers are and how much income they have. And then you got the Gen yep. Y that's got slightly less income, slightly uh, younger customers, but not incredibly young. With it's you know sort of and they're aging with their brands and their generations. Like chances are, most people listen to the music they did when they were teenagers. That's where their heart is. Yeah. Right. So some of the brands that you grew up with, you tend to stick with as well. And so that might just happen again. I think that's a repeatable pattern. But getting to scale in consumer has always been incredibly high risk, incredibly high reward. It's very hard to be Spotify. It's very hard to be Netflix. It, how many also runs are there? There is absolutely a power law in consumer and only a few big ones break through every year. Most of them will fail. This might be one of those cautionary tales, but it might not because the prize, if you do succeed, is enormous so funnily enough it reminds me of a business in the uk called yonder which is the uk doesn't really have a chase sapphire in quite the same way you don't have that like everybody has a credit card 
thing, especially in the under 40s and under 45s even. Like you see a few people with Amexes, but they're few and far between. Whereas what they've gone for is like, okay, this is not and on the surface of it, a travel card, it's an experience card, which includes travel, but it's mostly around food, it's mostly around city breaks, it's mostly around something else, which is much more what people in the urban cities are more concerned about. Frankly, they're way less likely to ever afford a house, they're way less likely to be doing big travel, especially even compared to their American peers, like the UK under 40s are like struggling by contrast as a generation to their global peers so this is something that you can achieve that gives you a sense of status that you can kind of work with i think there's value in that and they will make a very good business credit card interchange is naturally better credit card like with a fee is even better but you know the interchange is there unless durbin 2.0 gets rid of it so who knows <laughs> well uh if uh senator durbin is listening to this podcast please 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 just chill out. We've benefited enough, I think, from fintech innovation uh, resulting from some of your earlier work, and we're still having fun with that. So maybe just relax. Simon, you get the honor, the great honor of giving us the last company. So uh, please share. Okay, so this is Prosper. And I call these guys Betterment for Gen Y that's getting a little bit older. So, you know, Betterment is Betterment for Gen Y. You know, Wealthfront is Wealthfront for Gen Y. Like, these are the robo-advisors, right? But join Prosper. They're a British company. They're a modern fund investment platform offering mutual funds, bonds, tax-efficient accounts, self-directed pensions, so like a 401k equivalent, and a general investment account with a savings rate of 5.46% in money market funds. Two things stood out. One, there is a lifetime maximum fee for all assets bought on the platform of 0.25%. That is less than some of the cheapest providers like Vanguard would offer as a blended rate on a lot of these funds. And they do a 0.04% transaction fee. So Vanguard would be like 0.2% plus 0.15% on the transaction. So, you know, it's kind of really, really ultra competitive with an at-scale player. And you wonder, like, how are they going to compete with this at-scale player with this kind of pricing? And they say, very simply, our cost of running our uh, business, our cost of acquisition is much, much lower, but our cost to serve is incredibly low because we've got APIs for everything. We have a tiny team We've got third parties who carry much of the licensing cost for us. We are essentially a very pure play distribution partner for funds. And we're taking a tiny, tiny margin on top of that. And we believe that with that, we can scale. Here's the insight. How many people in Gen Y are in their mid to late 30s starting to think, oh my God, things are getting expensive. Oh, I wish my money was working harder for me. I need to move my money around. How's my 401k doing? Like it just sort of tweaks. It's, it's, it's like a life stage. So I think this is really well-timed. Like if you have something sitting in a robo-advisor at 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8, or even 1% management fee, wow, a 1% difference in your management fee over a 30-year life of a pension can cost you half of the total by the end of it. So let's say with a 1% fee, you were going to save a really impressive pension. You were going to do really well in life and you were going to get to half a million dollars. If you drop that fee all the way to zero, 
uh, or you remove that 1%, then you would have a million dollars because of the nature of compounding. Right. And people don't realize that, but they're starting to wake up to it. I think we have a cost-conscious movement coming to Gen Y, and this is really well-timed for, for that exact reason. That's really interesting. The timing point is a good one, right? And I hear this from founders in fintech every single day, right? Like timing, luck, you know, like when your solution hits the market at the right time. I was just thinking, so we were talking before about building products for younger consumers and kind of catching that generational wave. Like Robinhood would be something without COVID and us all being locked down, but it's not the same company if that doesn't happen. So like timing is everything. And it is actually an interesting contrast to someone like a Robin Hood, where everything I see from Robin Hood these days is them trying to become something kind of more like this, like passive investing, thinking for the long term. So I think even in their customer base, they're seeing this shift of, you know, now like our customers are a little older than they were five years ago. And their priorities, particularly in a non-ZERP environment, have changed. And they are starting to ask these really specific questions about yeah, like what is the cost of these management fees for compounding for investments that are going to take 30 years to mature? And like making those decisions is really interesting. I also think to your point about the small team, technology-driven business, very sort of light distribution layer over the top with a very small sort of VIG that you're taking, I wonder if we're going to see more of this in financial services and in fintech moving forward, because for a while, it seems like the the model was try to basically build like an incredibly sort of ambitious like LTV of your customer. Like, I want to do everything for this customer. I want to bundle in a huge number of products, and I want to increase my margin over time. And I mean, just speaking from kind of more of a US perspective... I think we've seen a lot of consumer-facing fintech companies fail at that LTV thing, right? Like that's always like a slide in the pitch deck is, you know, over time, our LTV is going to go up, our margin is going to improve. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, you know, guys, I hate to break it to you, but like a thing that's been hard in financial services forever is cross-sell, right? You earn the right to win one thing and with the assumption that you're going to be able to cross-sell your way into paradise and you can't cross-sell your way into paradise because consumers just don't go for that, right? Like it's way, way harder to do. Banks have been struggling with that forever. That's why Wells Fargo cheated and just opened up accounts in their customer's name. Cross-sell is really freaking hard. And so there is something, I think, to this idea of, look, we're going to build a model that if we get scale, will make sense for us forever without having to do anything else. And I'm not saying that these guys don't have a roadmap with other things they want to offer, but like, I like the idea of just going like, what if we got to scale with this business model, with this cost and with this structure, and we just took this percentage forever. And our model was just drive as much scale and volume through that as possible. And I there's a certain kind of discipline to a model like that that's not based on the magical thinking of cross-sell that I kind of like, actually. Cost discipline is so hot right now. And <laughs> it really is. That's, that's been the mantra for about 18 months on the like renegotiate with your vendor. Every CFO wants you know, spend management. Like we saw all of that, but cost discipline on the consumer side is a conversation we haven't really had. And the tooling to achieve cost discipline is kind of been missing. So timing is everything. I yep. really like that as a model going forward. My hypothesis on the next decade of fintech or whatever label we end up giving it is that it bifurcates. One, 
we see fintech move into the more complex financial products. And we've seen that go up into capital markets, private credit. We're seeing it really move up into those really complex, gnarly products. Commercial lending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But distributing them with like a fintech experience. And the second thing is on the early fintech products, we see this cost battleground play out. And that cost battleground could mean new companies that just compete with brand new infrastructure and have a lower cost to serve or people just competing on price more generally as as a, as a mainstream thing and that cost battleground is really key but again I, I window that with gen y the window for gen z perhaps they're not as price sensitive at this stage you that's know, so probably true so you know it's companies moving generations it's absolutely true. That's uh, I think thematically, that's something that uh, we've been hitting on across all of these companies. Simon, first of all, congratulations on keeping to a very efficient podcast so far. Like we are like zipping right along. This has been going great, which leaves us a little bit more time, perhaps, than we normally do to manifest a couple ideas. Sure. I have one. Um, I'm assuming you might as well. Would you like me to go first? Or would you like to go first? Yeah, I have something I've been toying with, but please go first. All right. So this is like a, this came to me late at night as I was going to sleep sort of idea. So not not fleshed out at all. But let me workshop this with you for a second. So in the world of collections and recovery, so lending money and then trying to get it back, there are a couple different dynamics that are at play. One is this move towards more sort of customer-centric or customer-focused collections. And so this is companies like True Accord and a number of others that have come into the market and basically said, hey, if you treat your customers like human beings, meaning that you treat them in a polite, respectful manner, you use the channels that they want to communicate with, which is mostly self-service channels, you can actually get better performance, right? Like you get more uh, flies with honey, so to speak. How about that? That's shocking. It's like just blows my mind that consumers might prefer that type of experience. And then on the other end of the spectrum, when you get into recovery, where the debt's been written off and it becomes more of a game of like, hey, you know, creditors are just going to come after this consumer to try to get as much recovered debt as possible, whether it's on behalf of the financial institution or if the debt's been sold to a third party. And that is and probably always will be a much more combative process, right? Because you know, at that point, you're not really worried about saving the customer relationship. It's really just more of a dollars and cents game. There's all kinds of, yeah, there's like agencies that work on contingency. It's a whole sort of different market. But one thing that you do see more on the recovery side that I think is kind of interesting is you do see folks that will work on behalf of consumers to essentially negotiate with all of your creditors to say, hey, if you have, you know, all of these different debts, Let me go work on your behalf to go negotiate on behalf of all your creditors to see if we can get them to leave you alone and sort of get to a good resolution. And that's like a service that's provided. Sure. Mr. Taylor, I wonder if there is a similar need for more of a cross-institution collaboration for earlier stage collections. So the concept here would be that if you as a consumer hit some kind of rough patch in your financial life, like you have an unexpected medical expense you lose your job, whatever kind of thing happens that kind of temporarily derails your ability to pay. Today, there's the ability on an individual one-by-one basis to work with your lenders. Maybe they'll have kind of proactive pre-collections work that they do. You can get sometimes forbearance programs or payment plans in place. But 
it's done on a very individual one-by-one basis. And collections in that environment is almost more competitive or zero-sum in the sense that all of the different lenders treat it as like, hey, I got to get the customer to prioritize paying me back at the exclusion of maybe paying back some of their other creditors, right? So it's like very zero-sum kind of competitive. Sure. I wonder if there's a way to catalyze a different model, which is to say, hey, as a consumer, I've hit this rough patch. I want to honor all of my obligations. I want to stay in good standing with all of my different lenders that I work with. Can we all come together through some sort of collaboration mechanism where I can kind of figure out with all of you how I'm going to pay all of these back and sort of more of a collaborative payment plan process rather than it being done in an individual basis? So this is a little pie in the sky. would be hard to kind of catalyze this shift in the market, but I do think there is a value in making early stage collections, particularly for that like emergency, my life has been thrown into chaos use case, more collaborative rather than zero sum. The ROI on better collections is obvious. You get more money than you otherwise would have. You would have lost money. Like, Why wouldn't you go do this? This is completely crazy. And it also saves the customer relationship, right? Like, I, I think the other thing that you really want to avoid, and this is why collections is fundamentally different than recovery is, this is a good customer, right? And like, the worst thing you can do is end up in a scenario where you're writing them off or you are sending them down a path where their collections treatments are going to be really like aggressive and sort of destroy your brand value with that customer. Like all of those are losses on the investment you already made to acquire this customer and build up loyalty with them. Why not protect that investment? Why not protect that investment? I think the other thing that came to my mind was just the benefit of that customer, their mental health. Like this is such a better experience. I mean, it's just, it's the true accord business case. Yeah. There is a charity in the United Kingdom called Step Change that does basically this. Essentially, they will negotiate on your behalf with all of your creditors, and then they will find the most efficient way to pay that debt down. But essentially, they receive money from you, but they also are a charity, so they receive money externally, and they use that funding to pay all of the creditors some portion. And so all of the creditors are getting a piece of their cash flow, not just like the first one first and the second one second, which is what a lot of debt consolidation agencies do, is they pay down the high costs first. So it's not debt reconsolidation, it's a true charity in that sense, but they're working differently and their value proposition is differently. I could see an industry utility like this being particularly valuable, and maybe it's something that spins out of like a true accord or something like that, which is like, we already know how to do this more effectively than anybody else. There's our private service, which is convincing people to collect, but then there's, they've fallen into delinquency. Let's give them a payment plan. Like that's a whole other arm to it. But that utility side would probably be something that's somewhat separate because it is non-differentiated. Whereas the, I do remember those speaking to a very large credit card company once that said, we believe our ability to sell off bad debt is one of our competitive differentiators because we operate in <laughs> subprime. And yeah. first of all, I was like, that is the most clinical, savage thing I think I've ever heard. It works on a spreadsheet, but ill. Yeah. It's true when you're working in subprime, your ability to sell bad debt is a competitive advantage. But ill, 
It shouldn't be. Totally. Ew. It's not the industry we want, right? I mean, we're trying to manifest things here. Like, that's not the industry that I want. And the other thing I'll say on the utility front is this also feels like something that could really get unlocked by open banking. Because I think the other thing that we're going to see a shift around is today consumers treat all of their financial relationships as like siloed relationships, right? So it's like, hey, this company's calling me. I got to call them back. I have a question for this company over here. So like, I think of my financial life in a bunch of different silos. I do think open banking is going to catalyze a shift where now as a consumer, I'm going to think more in terms of what experiences that I want, can I plug all of my financial relationships into to get outcomes that are better for me? And so if I want as a consumer, all of my different lenders to come together to work with me on a holistic payment plan to get me through this rough patch, someone should be able to build a utility that lets me plug all of those in and I want everyone to come to the table and play nice. Like, I don't think that's a totally unreasonable thing to ask for. Help me pay down my debts without the admin. That feels like a job to be done. Exactly. So manifesting, manifesting spatial computing experiences in financial services that are not branches. Because every- No branches in the metaverse. No branches in the metaverse. (laughs) Please. Like, do you know, observation number one, Consider how different the world has reacted to spatial computing from the term metaverse. So metaverse is the company called Meta and a weird-looking Mark Zuckerberg, and this stuff isn't ready yet. It's obviously a toy. Spatial computing is all of the standard Apple stuff. The first version's a bit janky. It's too expensive. It's not quite there yet, which is every Apple V1 product ever. And yet, the tech nerds isn't, aren't saying this is a toy. It's like, now I have the six screen setup of my dream and I have it everywhere. I have the desktop experience everywhere. Now, what would that look like to be a power user everywhere? So that's kind of nice. The second thing is, will they start to move towards presence? Like, actually, could this democratize? Could this make distance less of a thing? Does it actually bring back the person from the branch? Does it bring back human in some way? Does it bring back something else? And the last question is, like, what does payment look like? Is it, like, pinching my fingers? Is it some weird handshake? Like, what's the gesture (laughs) for payment in spatial going to be? So, like, the more I think about it, the more I don't think it's as ridiculous as it sounds on the surface. I just can't imagine... We are going to see a blizzard of spatial banking blog posts come in the next 6 to 12 months. But what's really excited me is how many developers are getting their hands on this stuff. The fact that the hardware has the ability to store credit and debit cards just like an iPhone does. So you can put payment tokens into this thing. Like, it's not crazy. Like, I've always been an optimist. I hate buzzwords. I hate, here's the new thing. But the little tech nerd in me, that little hopeful, non-grizzled, cynical teenager is still like, (laughs) oh, this could be quite cool, actually. We could do some interesting things. What happens when talented young people get their hands on this? What experiences might they design? Please don't design a branch. That's I am manifesting spatial experiences that are good, that are not a branch. Amen. I could not agree more. I will offer that the... um... 
rubbing your fingers together as if you're asking for money would be a good spatial gesture for pain. So maybe we can manifest that. Does that come with a little MasterCard sound that they spent so much money it on? It should. <laughs> it should. That's this is like this is MasterCard's moment. Like you rub your fingers together and like MasterCard's pleasing little chime sound happens. Which is aggressively loud on every point of sale system in the United States. No nowhere else in the world cares, but in the US you hear that thing so loud. It's so unnecessary. That's right. It, it just like it, it haunts your dreams. So we have that going for us. Um, I think tying it all the way back to the beginning, having Apple have the integration with TipTop so that I can see how much I can sell my $3,500 $100 piece of hardware for when my wife gets mad at me. Like, how much of that total cost of ownership can you uh, improve for me would be a nice feature. But no, I, I completely agree. The one thing I'll just toss out there as a slight thought on the sort of spatial computer native experience would be the financial education. And I say that with like all of the like concern about that being a buzzword. I and everyone who says financial education without having actually tried to teach it to board high school students, like yeah. please stop saying that word until you've tried that. But there is something to the idea of like what can a shared experience where I can have a chart sort of projected and then I as an expert in whatever it is we're talking about can show you like here's the actual benefit of compounding interest over time. Like going back to your example with the um, you know, the company that's doing the brokerage and the investing stuff, like, okay, what's the difference between one percent and a much smaller number over, you know, 50 years? Let me actually show you what that looks like. There is some element of being able to visualize these things that I think could be really powerful from a sales, customer acquisition, customer service perspective. So there has to be something that we can build here that would be valuable. Fingers crossed. Simon has his fingers crossed. All right, Simon, that was a wonderful thing to manifest. As always, a delight to talk to you. Thank you for your time. And let's do this again, shall we? Uh, yeah, okay. I'll be up for that. Um, let's manifest some stuff. Let's do more not fintech advice. Have a good week, everybody. Likewise. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fintech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest fintech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love Fintech Takes, please tell a friend.